Hello, everybody. Welcome back once again to Driving the Deal. I'm Brian Fortune with the Farragut Square Group. We have an excellent series we're about to embark on. For the next three episodes, we're going to be focusing across the broad universe of behavioral health. And our first episode is going to be focused on autism. For each of these episodes, we'll be partnering with our friends in Nashville, Tennessee at Brentwood Capital Advisors. Today, we'll be talking to Dan Berline, who works at Brentwood and also was the development officer at Bluesbrick and Sid on the board of autism Tennessee so thanks Dan for joining us thank you happy to join uh, pleasure to be here well let's just launch right in so on each of these series we're going to kind of start off by just looking at the macro environment so, so on autism a good place to start I think is just let's talk about the kind of supply demand imbalance and how and whether it's changed over the last few years and then we'll kind of walk that forward into what we expect to see as we head into the next few yes like many subsectors of behavioral health autism and the demand for services, unfortunately, is surging. Roughly 2.8% of children are now receiving an autism diagnosis. In 2001, when Indiana became the first state to mandate ABA coverage, the prevalence for autism spectrum disorder was roughly 1 in 166. In 2019, when Tennessee became the 50th state to mandate coverage for ABA, that prevalence rate had grown dramatically to 1 in 59. Today, ASD prevalence has increased to 1 in 36 in the latest estimation from the CDC as of March of this year. Outside of the incredible surge in diagnosis rates, you've also seen the demand for services spike as ABA therapy over the last two decades has become widely accepted as the gold standard for treatment. That's fascinating, Dan. So the question, do you think that that diagnosis rate is going to continue to trend down or have we reached some new saturation? Accounting for the fact that that was a huge jump. Certainly the increase in diagnosis is based on many factors. There have been lots of studies about that topic. Obviously, the ability to diagnose has become much greater over the last two decades. The understanding of autism, both clinically and socially, has changed incredibly over the last two decades. Fortunately, I do anticipate the prevalence to continue to increase, hopefully at lower rates or lower growth rates than it has over the last few years, but we shall see. So let's talk about the supply of uh, trained professionals to serve this population. Whenever we look at autism, obviously people talk about the fact that there's a pretty big imbalance between, you know, supply of providers and clearly, as you outlined, a massively increasing demand. But I'd love it if you just kind of break that down. If if all 50 states now cover services, tell me who covers it fairly well and and are there areas or regions where the imbalance is even greater? Sure. You know, there there certainly is a, a massive supply demand imbalance in the sector, much like other areas of behavioral health. And to meet that, there has been an incredible increase increase in the number of providers, uh, roughly a 500% increase in the number of service providers in the last 10 years. However, over half of those providers have less than five years of experience. In this space, with industry turnover rates ranging anywhere from 30 to 75%, the supply simply hasn't come close to keeping up with the demand for services. In a traditional ABA model of one-on-one therapy with a child and and an RBT, the conventional thought is that to meet the current demand, the workforce would need to double, both on the, the diagnostic side as well as on the therapy side. You often hear kind of a rule of thumb is that for every provider resignation you have in the space, you have to hire two additional providers just due to the incredible turnover rate of these therapists. To the question about variability across regions, you certainly do see wide variability across the country. Historically, the coasts have enjoyed higher levels of staffing versus the 
what I'd call provider deserts that exist in a lot of rural, secondary, and tertiary markets. And this variability has also largely followed the trend of the implementation of coverage over the last 20 years as well. Uh, for autism providers, you know, the key differentiator that is going to drive premium value um, for either a transaction um, or a sale, it's it's going to be their internal recruitment and training department. And as we talked earlier in in the piece, uh, that's where a lot of folks have stumbled uh, with the turnover rates where they are. It's it's a key piece of your operation. So the ability to recruit, train, and retain staff in this space is paramount. Great overview, Dan. Thank you for that. Let's move on and talk a little bit about the evolution of the service mix. And I'll just kick off by saying you mentioned that ABA therapy is the gold standard for this, but what do we think of it beyond that in terms of sort of provider mix? Is there some preference for virtual visits in home or at clinics or even some of these school-based options we've seen? Sure. Good question. Each provider certainly has the ability to optimize their mix. But the key thing to understand about autism from almost every angle is that it's not homogenous. It's not homogenous across markets, and often it's not homogenous within markets. So it's it's always going to be relative to service mix, site allocation, whether you're doing strictly ABA or adding ancillaries like PT, OT, or speech. It's always going to be market and provider specific. You know, the way the evolution of mandates and coverage has evolved, you essentially have 50 different markets by state. And then based on varying levels of Medicaid, commercial, and local school district funding within a state, you'll have even more variability. At the end of the day, I think medium to large size providers will have a diverse mix of funding sources and sites of service where smaller providers, typically you need to optimize one to two delivery models or sites of service before you add others to the mix. You can you can spread yourself too thin trying to be everything to everyone. But as far as sites of service, there's some general consensus broadly that a clinic-based site of service will provide a more efficient, flexible environment for the provider and the client, but that comes with a CapEx and a a fixed rental liability. So, you know, those clinics will need to run at optimal capacity. The build it and they'll come strategy is not a good one. In some other markets, California, for instance, in-home services are often preferred by the client, but those will reduce your staffing efficiency due to drive time and scheduling. However, on the flip side, your costs are mostly variable without the CapEx and rent payments that come with the traditional clinic model. And then lastly, assuming that the the economics of school-based contracts work, those school-based programmings and contracts can be attractive options for both clients and providers. Oftentimes, the school systems somewhat help supplement the provider by utilizing existing school facilities and even school-based employees for things like BCBA supervision. Let's talk about something that's going to come up whenever we're looking at a deal, and that's, you know, we covered the idea of cover and that coverage is now pretty broad. But the next most important question is going to be reimbursement. And what's your general thought on reimbursement for ABA? Does it does it have a wide variance uh, geographically or is it, has it been stable or do you think it's changing? Yeah. Along with staffing, recruitment, and retention challenges, this is the major concern for all providers. Like many healthcare service providers, while staffing costs have gone up 18 plus percent over the last few years, the rates have largely stayed flat. And that obviously leads to margin 
compression that all sectors of healthcare have seen, you know, over the last several years. As far as the variability, though, with, with all 50 states now having a mandate for commercial coverage, the coverage gaps have largely been addressed over the last several years. However, you do see strong variability in reimbursement across markets. You have some states with higher than average reimbursement. Examples might be Arizona, Florida, Illinois. And then you have states where uh, on average rates are significantly lower. Louisiana, Oregon, Washington come to mind. Historically, though, the rates have remained flat over time with marginal increases on a case-by-case -case basis. And those are usually driven by one-on-one -on -one direct negotiation from the provider to the payer. But it's all done on a case-by-case -case basis. Do you know the spread in the service mix between Medicaid and employer-based commercial or just individual market commercial? It is going to vary widely by market. And again, the fact that in one state, Medicaid may be the dominant payer and may be the most attractive payer. In others, it may be the one that you just simply can't afford to take. In addition to Medicaid, school-based Department of Education funding or commercial, you know, an additional payer that comes into play often is TRICARE, uh, where you have deep concentrations of military bases. Interesting. When it comes to commercial payer reimbursement, now, obviously, if it's the Medicaid service, then, you know, you're kind of dealing with sort of a statewide decision. But when it just comes to other commercial payers, are there some providers that are better positioned on reimbursement than others in terms of what they offer and size or scale? Or It will vary by market. Some providers, if you have the scale, you almost have to segment the market into two buckets. You've got your smaller mom and pop providers, and then you have your larger national chains. Once you reach the scale of a national chain, yes, then certainly you can go to an Optum or, or a Magellan and negotiate either a nationwide contract or at least a regional contract. The smaller mom and pop providers or smaller networks that are maybe just in one or two states, uh, the ability to do that is pretty low. Conventional wisdom, I think, out of the gate in the early period of platform formation starting in 2016, 17, and 18, when you're hearing of massive platforms forming and trading for large multiples, the thought was with scale, we will then have leverage over the payers and be able to demand higher rates. That has not been the case in most instances. So yeah, it's it's certainly a market-by-market market driven phenomenon for sure. Last question on coverage. In some spaces, we, we haven't seen so much reimbursement pressure from the payers, but more of an approach to utilization management controls. Have we seen any of that rear up in the autism space? I think it's early for that here. I'm sure there are isolated cases of overutilization that, that payers have had to address in a particular market or with a particular provider, but UM and narrowing of networks will certainly be a focus area for payers in the future and for providers as they start to begin down the road of value-based care. But for the autism sector specifically, it's certainly the early innings. Let's move on to a topic, obviously, everybody's going to ask, and that is just thoughts on investing in the space. I know that all of our friends at Brentwood have been pretty active in the behavioral space. So the good news is I'm sure you all have strong opinions. So let's launch into something we've seen, and that is, you know, at Farragut, we've worked on a number of autism deals and, and obviously followed them. But if you think about M&A in the, in the autism space, at this point, you can now note that there have been some fabulous success stories. And there's also been a few, I think, widely regarded epic failures. So let's talk about that. Can you identify any themes regarding what differentiates between a success and a fail if you're building an autism platform? Yeah, certainly. The biggest takeaway here is that bigger is not always better. As we've seen recently from some of the largest national platforms that have completely 
left markets altogether, pulling out of entire states in one big move. Scale alone doesn't provide the leverage with payer sources or from an employee recruitment and retention standpoint. I'd say the thought or the strategy from 2016 through up really up until COVID was that the important thing to focus on at a platform level is grow at all costs. Get aggressive on acquisitions because the therapists are so hard to come by. The ability to grow them organically within the organization is tough. So we need to acquire strong clinical leadership. Let's do that. If we need to acquire new markets with the typical buy and build strategy, let's do that. And then as multiples started to ramp up and get a bit out of control, then that's when folks started shifting to the de novo strategy. If, as long as you have patient capital, and you're willing to wait on the, the those clinics to ramp up over the 18 to 24 month period, you, you get a far you can generate a far greater return on your investment for building out a, a network of de novo clinics versus going and paying high multiples for those same clinics in other states. But that scale alone and simply putting pins on the map through rapid MA or de novo expansion was not a recipe for success. The key takeaway here for me is you must be deep and dense in your core markets. If you're not, you have no leverage from a recruitment standpoint. You have no leverage from a flexibility of staffing standpoint, and you certainly have have no leverage from a payer and or a reimbursement standpoint. Right. That's a good pivot into my next question, though, and that is if you're looking at autism, what do you think are the most important uh, things to consider when you start to evaluate an opportunity? At the end of the day, the first thing that most folks focus on on, obviously, are, are the numbers. What does the growth look like? What's the white space look like? What's the opportunity? I think more than anything that, you know, the key areas that have been overlooked just to kind of address failures in the past, the key or areas that have been overlooked by a lot of folks, it's been the focus on fit and culture within the parent organization. If you're looking from an M&A standpoint, it's how is this new acquisition going to fit into the existing organization from a, a culture and a value standpoint. I kind of compare it to just to show the stark comparison between a traditional physician practice or a facility roll-up where those are typically homogenous by market. And an e-scope in Seattle is the same as an e-scope in Florida. An OR nurse in Seattle is largely looking for the same thing that an OR nurse in Florida is looking for. Autism is different. These are typically founder-led organizations where the frontline therapists have worked with that lead BCBA or the founder of that, that network since the start of their career. And when an acquisition happens that, and that founder departs and they're rolled up into a larger organization, the lack of focus and attention and investment on integrating that new acquisition has bitten a lot of folks going forward. A lot of instances where organizations have been acquired, you buy a network of clinics, you're buying a book of clients, and then 90% of your rank and file employees depart and go to other providers, or in some instances, completely leave the industry altogether. So you've spent a lot of money on an acquisition and there's really nothing left to show for it at the end of the day. So. Um, um, this provider base and this employee base, you know, several key characteristics of, of the base, they're largely female, they're, they're largely young in their careers, they're mobile, and, you know, they're focused on how they're valued, they're focused on their long-term career opportunity, and there have been tons of stories and, and studies done on what leads to you know, the high turnover rates in the space and the things that always rise to the top or are lack of truly feeling valued by the organization. Burnout, you know, is obviously number one that comes about, but that burnout is an end effect 
of, in my opinion, the lack of focus on cultural fit and really focusing on the employees and their needs. No, that's right. No, it seems like to sum up, obviously, if you're going to do this successfully, don't don't move too fast and make sure that you're bringing people into a, a culture that they want to join. Absolutely. Diligence is key. You know, 90 to 120 days, everyone's focused on the QV. Everyone's focused on building out the, the integration is going to look like from a management level, but so little attention is really focused on how are we going to communicate what just happened? How are we going to give the employees all across the organization comfort that this is a a good transaction for them long-term, that there will be long-term career opportunities in the future that they otherwise maybe didn't have in a smaller organization. That process is key and oftentimes it's overlooked and it will lead to bad outcomes if it's not addressed. Well, this raises an interesting point and that is that does, is the idea of, of approaching this space from a, a growth cap standpoint, is, is that also something that you might see? Like, you know, you pick some of the more proselytizing sort of passionate founders and then maybe do a growth cap strategy with them as they get bigger. And then you don't have to worry so much about the cultural cross-wiring that might occur when you're on a, a much more aggressive kind of M&A schedule. Yeah, certainly. And that was the strategy in the early days of, of the platform formation. You know, there are roughly, there's over 50, quote, you know, platforms in quotes right now, you know, backed by private equity. Founding a platform with the right culture in mind from the ground up is a strategy that everyone embarks on. After you can grow that founder-led organization to a certain point, but down the road, you're eventually going to need to grow through acquisition opportunities. And in this space, every organization provide the highest quality. They all obviously focus more on the client and the family than their competitors. We obviously know everyone can't be doing that. So the there's this pride that comes with almost every organization. So Dan, when we're thinking about autism versus kind of the broader behavioral umbrella, do you think there are unique factors in it that differentiate it from, you know, say just outpatient psych or SUDS or, or another type of provider? As you look across the, the broader continuum of behavioral health treatment, there's a lot of variability in treatment modalities that, that are used uh, to treat varying conditions. I think an advantage that autism, uh, the autism sector has is that there is, there's wide agreement and uh, among providers uh, and clinicians and referral sources that, that ABA therapy is that gold standard. So, you know, as you look at the growth of the industry, one thing that, you know, a positive piece is that you're, you're not going to be having a lot of discussions long-term about the efficacy of you know treatment A versus treatment B, it's it's widely understood and agreed upon that ABA therapy is that gold standard. I would think that over the long term, that actually would help in sort of training and recruiting new therapists versus some other spaces. Do you agree? Yeah, and and, and understand these therapists are they are specifically trained in this modality, you know, from the get go. This is this is what they do now. Obviously, but you know, ABA is not the be all end all. Uh, there are obviously other treatment therapies that are, that are utilized for for children on, and adults on the spectrum. But also, ABA is not only used in autism; it's used in lots of other areas as well. So, Dan, basically, we're we're you know to bring this full circle. Uh, there's lots of opportunity in autism, but. You'd also say it's not necessarily easy. You really have to to focus in on on you know what what type of asset you want and uh, do your do your diligence. But you know from the standpoint of just being at, at Brentwood, 
you know, obviously bringing some of these companies to market, like what, what's your advice to uh, the buy side in terms of should they be looking at this? And, you know, what types of purchasers do you think are focused correctly? Sure. As far as characteristics of, of the space, it's still extremely fragmented. There, there are going to be lots of opportunities uh, moving forward. Uh, valuations are coming down to what I'd consider realistic levels. They've been a bit crazy for the last five to six years. You're still going to be looking for the same characteristics that you see or that you're targeting in other sectors as a buyer. You know, you want to see consistency of earnings. You want to see steady and predictable growth over time. It's obviously one of the most attractive and has been one of the most attractive sectors for investment, largely due to the just the overwhelming increase in prevalence. So the the demand side is not the issue. You have to, but you have to do your diligence on the ability to answer that supply side question. For or as the question about the the landscape of buyers, this is not, in my opinion, this is not an ideal space for uh, short term investment. It is not an ideal space for a typical three-year hold that you know some funds uh, are bound by based on their funding requirements. You know, there's been a, a recent uptick in interest from longer-term in- investors. There's been a lot of tension from family office, as an example, folks that are willing to ride that investment for longer periods of time. But you know, it's it's certainly not one that. If you're looking for the quick flip, there's going to be a lot of evolution in this space over the next five to 10 years. Um, you know, I, w- I would certainly counsel you to do your diligence on on your long-term strategy for the investment. All right. That's a great answer. Well, Dan, this was the beginning of a much longer and detailed conversation. And I'm uh, exceedingly grateful for you joining us today because I think that was just a fantastic uh, opener. You know, obviously, uh, lots of opportunity out there, but um, definitely lots of conversations people have to have a, in a very thoughtful way as they move ahead. But thank you. And thank you to our friends at Brentwood. Again, this is the first in a series, so we will be back soon talking about substance abuse and then just talking about a much broader basket of kind of psychiatry and behavioral across multiple different modalities. So stay tuned for that. Thanks everybody for joining us. We will continue to see you all out there on the road and and listening to podcasts. So thank you everybody. Uh, Again, this is Brian Fortune and have a great day. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.